your Bibles and turn to the 14th chapter of Luke's Gospel as we continue now in our study here along with Dr. Luke as he records uh, these wonderful vignettes, these stories as he's moving towards Jerusalem and as he picks up yet another Sabbath. This will be his final Sabbath that we have recorded in Scripture uh, before he makes it to Jerusalem. He's still in the region of Perea. Uh, down in the Jordan River Valley, he's in uh, with a group of people who are on their sabbatical, some Sadducees, some Pharisees, and very likely a large member of the Sanhedrin, which we'll get to in a moment. But he's speaking to a group now at, at you might call, a, a religious dinner. And so this morning, uh, we're, we're going to see this incredible uh, picture that Jesus sets for us, and, and it's an interesting one. And so this morning, guess who's coming to dinner? Now, I don't know how many of you can remember that movie from 1967, um, but it was a it was a very much a breakthrough movie in 1967, because still in a large portion of the United States in the South, interracial marriage was still illegal. In fact, in 17 states, almost entirely in the South, uh, it was illegal. But it had been illegal in the entire United States prior to that for much of the country's history. And so if you know the storyline, Catherine Hepburn, Sidney Poitier, and uh, Spencer Tracy were in that movie. Spencer Tracy would actually die just shortly after the finishing of the filming of that movie. Uh, But the storyline is this. There's a young lady who's kind of come from a liberal San Francisco family, and as she comes from that liberal San Francisco family, she's coming back to introduce her fiancé. And it was all okay until they found out that he was black. And then it became a time of interrogation. What is this all about? Who is this going to uh, put in our family? And it's a very, very interesting movie. And in fact, it would be uh, just a, a year, almost a year later, uh, that finally here in the United States that the anti-misogenation laws would be struck down. Uh, and permanently done away with in a Supreme Court decision, Loving versus Virginia. Uh, but in the plot, Joanna, who is Catherine Hepburn's character, and she won an Academy Award for that role in that movie. Uh, it also got the best original screenplay that year. Uh, but in, in her character defense, uh, they taught her to treat black people with respect. But that was okay until it touched their family. And then it became a problem. And though, of course, today we would just say this is an absolute absurdity, and none of us, I believe, in this room would ever hold those views, but it kind of gives you a picture that sometimes dinners can be a real trap. Amen? (laughs) Guess who's coming to dinner? Well, in this case, Jesus is coming to dinner, and so our story is very much the same. As we turn our attention to the word down, verse 1 of chapter 14 And you'll notice that the table is spread here in the first verse. And it came to pass, or now it happened, if you have the New King James, that as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on a Sabbath day, that they watched him. And as they do this, uh, this is the place where we kind of get the sense that there's something not so good afoot. 
The word that's used here, watched, is only used two places in the entire New Testament, and it means to look on with disdain, to figure something out that is wrong. And so they are inspecting Jesus at this point. That is what the world still does today. They're inspecting Jesus. They're looking at Christians. They look at church. They want to find out what is wrong with the body of Christ and with our Lord. And so not much has changed. And the Lord Jesus is going to give a defense now of his appearance at the supper. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for this gathering. Lord, as we've come, how we've come really to hear from you. And so, God, we pray that your word would speak for itself, that you, Jesus, as you recorded these words through the the writings of Dr. Luke, God, would they speak to us today as they spoke then? Lord, would we see how what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear this morning? We ask that you would bless your word by your spirit to our understanding. Lord, help us to grow. Help us to to step forward into new and wonderful ways in our walks with you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so it came to pass that as he went into the house of the chief priest of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him. And the normal role of the chief priests were also a member of the Sanhedrin. And so we know that at least some, if not many, maybe all of this group were of two specific groups of religious rulers. First and foremost, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you must also be a Pharisee. And so to be a Pharisee is to put yourself on the legalist side of the Jewish faith. And so the Pharisees were kind of the keepers of the law. And so they were the ones that were largely responsible for the, for the instrumentation, if you will, of what the Old Testament scriptures said to the average Jew. In other words, here's what Moses said in the Ten Commandments, and then, of course, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, as they kind of uh, made these things into, into somewhat more of a descriptive uh, reading for the Jewish people, and so they could look, and here's the law about the Sabbath. And so it would be the Pharisees that would look at those things. Now, the Sanhedrin was a specific group of people. They were actually a religious court, and they were to decide religious matters alone. And in fact, in the life of Jesus, as we will see, uh, he will be brought before the Sanhedrin during his trial. And it will be Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, who would then pronounce that sentence that he had broken the Jewish law, and then they would say, look, he's a blasphemer. They would take him back to the civil law, which would have been Pilate and Herod, and it would be there that Jesus would be pronounced guilty. So these guys were Jewish lawyers. They were religious lawyers, but they were lawyers. And so they were used to dividing the very small minutia of the law. There was a great Sanhedrin that existed in Jerusalem, very long building that was directly adjacent to the Temple Mount, and it was a place where the religious laws were set before the people and decided. So if you were guilty of blasphemy, or maybe you were caught in the act of adultery, or you did something that transgressed the law of God, you were taken to the Sanhedrin. 
Now, in every larger community, there would also be, you'd have the great Sanhedrin, which existed in Jerusalem, and the lesser Sanhedrin that existed in major communities throughout the region of Judea. And so there would be, like we would have, the superior court, and then maybe the local traffic court. Uh, You would have maybe some judicial proceedings that would take place before a judge on matters of, of the penal code and such. You have you know, family court and all those kind of things. And so this was a lesser court, but they answered to the higher court. And it's important for you to understand who these people are, because their sole job is to basically, by the law, tell people exactly how holy they are. They're true legalists. And the only thing they care about is not personal righteousness that comes from the heart, but making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed, religiously. Not by grace and not through faith, by the law. And so the Lord Jesus is now going to minister in this environment with a bunch of Jewish attorneys and some pastors from the local church. You can kind of look at it that way. And so he says, now it happened as he went into the house, they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now when we read that word, we haven't got a clue what that means. Uh, Most people, if you said, hey, I've got dropsy, that's like, I have that whenever uh, I get something that has liquid in it, in my hands. It automatically seems to fly out of it. I have dropsy. That's not what it means. But it actually is related to a very broad group of problems physiologically with the human body that resorted in the storing of water in various parts of your body. It was usually a sign of both liver and kidney failure, and so the limbs would swell up, they would collect fluid, and they could no longer hold their arms up where they would normally be. They were extremely heavy, so they drooped and stooped. They were said to have dropsy. This man was extremely sick likely with renal kidney failure, likely with liver failure. He was dying. Didn't live very long with it during those days and times. He couldn't go get an MRI, couldn't go get a proper medical care. There was no such thing. And normally when people got sick like this, they were not long for this earth. And so this man is standing here in the midst of this group of religious lawyers. And I want you to see kind of how the trap is set because... This would not be a man who would normally be asked to be in this environment. This man has been brought here for a purpose, and it's a nefarious one. It's to try and trap Jesus once again. They they give him the invite to, hey, why don't you come have dinner with us? But the motivation is not good. And so here it is that Jesus steps into this situation. Two things. Could Jesus actually heal this man? That's what they're trying to figure out. They wanted to know if it could actually be done. Uh, It's been said that that's what he's been doing, and they wanted to see it for themselves. And the second thing is, would he do it on the Sabbath? And so they are setting a trap for Jesus. Because they're going to make up their own rules, their own religion, if you will. And so as Jesus steps into this situation, uh, these particular people, the the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin, 
they insisted on an absolute rigid observance of all of the things regarding the Sabbath. Now again, you must understand the day and time. It was not illegal to heal on the Sabbath. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you cannot heal someone on the Sabbath. So what the Pharisees had done and what the Sadducees has done is they had taken God's law, which was good and right and wonderful, and they had absolutely aberrated it and changed it into something loathsome by adding a condition that to heal someone you had to work. That's exactly what religion does. It takes what God intended to be a blessing, and it turns it into a weighted curse. Well, you can't heal somebody because you'll have to do work. You'll have to lift him up. You'll bear a burden to do that. It was not illegal to heal on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus is now going to give them the what for, if you will. He's going to turn the tables on them. And they basically defined what he would do as working. And and this kind of draws our attention. I don't want to belabor this point, but it draws our attention to what we see in our world today with regard to to a biblical view of Christianity and our walk with grace. Because we have been saved by grace and through faith. Amen. If you're a Christian and you're here today, you're not saved by works. You didn't join some club. You you don't have a certificate that says, "Hey, I'm a Christian." You got saved because Jesus died on Calvary's cross. He shed his blood for the remission of your sin. And you have now been freed from both the penalty of sin, which is death, and the, the horror of sin, which is living life without God. And so in grace, you now walk in that new freedom in life. You're no longer bound by the law. Paul makes that very clear as he writes to the church at Corinth, to the Roman Christians, He says, you're no longer under the law. Now, it doesn't mean that the law isn't good, by the way, but it means that you're not buried underneath the weight and the pressure of the law. And people have asked me, well, how come you've never taught in this church on Leviticus and Deuteronomy? I I just say, duh. Go, Go read it. And come back to me and ask me if you want me to do like a year and a half in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a lot of chapters. It's kind of weighty at times. I may get to it someday after I run out of the rest of the Bible. (laughs) You see, it's not that we want to skip it. It was written to the Jewish people. It provides a backdrop for us to understand we've been set free from. But it's a bummer when you read Deuteronomy. You read it and you're like, oh man, you can't mix meat and milk. You can't eat shellfish. You know, there's a lot of things in there. When you look at it, if you yank it out of the context of grace, which we now walk in, and you seek to get back to the law, you'll end up just like the Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll end up just like Seventh-day Adventism. You'll end up like Mormons. You'll end up like Christian science. And so you'll start thinking, well, there's only 144,000 of us going to be saved. You'll begin to think, you know what, hey... Uh, you're a Christian scientist. You believe that using medicine is wrong. Ellen G. White herself 
got sick that way. We have, we have, the Seventh-day Adventists believe that you have to be a vegetarian, that you can only worship on Saturday. Your Bible says exactly the opposite of that. Paul said he esteemed every day alike. Worship on every day. You don't have to confine it to a Saturday or a Sunday for that matter. You see, you can start focusing on things that really don't matter to God. And that's exactly what the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin did. Pretty soon it's about the mind. Well, you better strain your wine because you might have a gnat in there. If the gnat's got blood in it, then you ate the blood. That was the reason for straining your wine. Because life is in the blood. You're now a murderer because you ate a gnat. (gasps) Horrors. You see, the Lord's enemies now are going to be dumbfounded. Verse 3, And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're going, You can kind of see them grinding their teeth in their silence. Because the fact of the matter is, the answer to that question is, It is absolutely lawful to heal on the Sabbath. There was no problem whatsoever with healing on the Sabbath. So, verse 4, they kept silent. And then Jesus took the man and healed him and let him go. Jesus is totally in their face. He's just saying, look, your silence speaks volumes. You know, when you speak the truth and you silence somebody's lips, your, their silence speaks volumes. Very often I'll have the experience of sharing the truth with somebody. They'll tell me I'm completely nuts and all I'm doing is repeating what God's Word says. And they walk away wanting to do their own thing and they come back some months or years later and say, you know what, you were right. And I said, no, I wasn't right. God was right. And they walk away inside. Well, I don't want to talk. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it. You know? My wife is a, officially a doormat. God's Word says so. Right there in Ephesians. Submit yourself, woman. Didn't you read that? That isn't what it says. It says, submit as unto Christ. It's about the Lordship of Jesus. You see, you can start yanking stuff out of context and make it say all kinds of things it doesn't say. All kinds of things it doesn't say. And then he answered them, saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox? And I will tell you that there are some translators that look at the words used here and believe that that second word, ox, is actually not ox. It's actually son. I'm not sure, because the word that's used there is used loosely to mean a son. It's used exclusively to mean an ox, but it could mean other. But nonetheless, a donkey or an ox, or maybe your sons are oxes. Or donkeys, for that matter. I don't know. Mine are not, but maybe yours are. That's fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. Think about it for a second. If you were a Jew and you're walking on the Sabbath and the sun's the day before the Sabbath and the sun's shadow should overtake you, you were supposed to stop wherever you were and begin the Sabbath. I mean, that's how crazy it got. It's like I can't walk the other hundred yards to get home. 
It had become absolutely insane. And so for the Jewish people, the, the law which was supposed to be good had become a weight. It had become a burden. They're now just crushed underneath all of these minuscule renderings of what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin had come to teach was God's law. It wasn't illegal to heal. It was perfectly legal. And furthermore, God never intended for you to not save your ox or save your donkey. That was not what God's intent was with the Sabbath. His intent was that you would have a day of rest that was dedicated to worshiping God. That's it. It was that simple. Verse 6, he says, and they could not answer him regarding these things. Yeah, I'll bet. Because <laughs> he was right. He was God. It's amazing what happened. And so he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, he now begins to point out exactly how silly all of this is. How crazy we can get in the pursuit of legalism. And so he begins to talk to them about uh, grabbing the best seat or the best places. And when you think of this, again, it's helpful to know what's being talked about. They were talking about the normal, common gathering in a higher social function. Uh, they would be seated around what's known as a triclinium. And actually, each one of the couches at a triclinium was also called a triclinium because there were three seats there were normally three of them, and so there were three positions at each of the three seats shaped in a U like this diagram you see before you. And the center seat at each one of the triclinii, the plural of the triclinium, each one of them was considered a best seat. And there was a best best seat, which was the center seat at the center table. So it was a humongous deal. It was like Emily Post on steroids, okay? So what would happen in a larger vein is when people got together, they had, instead of been invited to sit in a specific seat, they would kind of jostle, jostle, and they'd go over, well, you know, I'm the senior Pharisee at this event. They'd hand out their business card. You guys have met people like that, right? You know, you can't go anywhere. Here's my card. They, that's what they would do. There was a sense of pride in who they were, and so they would fight about who was going to be in the best seats at the table. And in fact, as we look at the, the full implementation of this, there was actually a best table and a better table and a very greatest table. And so they'd be milling around just like, well, no, I think Bob should sit. No, Sam should sit over there, and Fred should be in that one. And they, go Bob, yes, and so they would they would literally jostle and they'd kind of rub shoulders and kind of bump each other. That was the tradition of the Pharisees to fight over the very best seats so that they could be dead in the center in the middle of it all so that someone would know by where they're sitting how important they were. Met people like that? pull up in their brand new Mercedes, their Giorgio Armani shoes, their fine woolen Italian suit, 
all of which they not only don't own, they borrowed the money to buy all of it, and they're really actually paupers. But they want people to know exactly how awesome they are. And in this case, unfortunately, it was how close they were to God. It was even more nefarious. Because the motivation in a gathering of these people was whoever sat in the center seat was trying to say, I'm more holy than everybody else. The host normally took seat number nine, which would be the seat closest to the door, in case there was any trouble. And the guest of honor, the special guest of honor, would be in the middle. And so now they're they're fighting over these things. And it was sickening to Jesus. And as Jesus is, is looking over this this thing that's happening to to in, in front of, in in front of him, he all of a sudden kind of changes his tactic. He's going to deal with the situation right here and right now. And he's really going to judge the hearts of, of why we do what we do, not what we do. And I'm sure you've met people like this. They want to be involved in everything, but responsible for nothing. They, they, they want to show up, oh yeah, well you know, I'm this and I'm that. But at the end of the day, there's not much depth to their service. You can do something one time, but if you ask them to do it, well, you know, I don't know if I can do that. You know, serve in the nursery? Two Sundays in a row? Oh, horrible. And so as they're clamoring for the best seats, much like y'all have played musical chairs, amen? (laughs) You don't want to be the one without the seat, right? That's what they're doing. So they gather, they're rushing around, and so Jesus begins to speak to them again in in verse 8. And notice what he says. And when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. And he's speaking directly about that center seat at the center table. He says, don't do it. Don't sit at the best seat, best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he's he's kind of putting this in now into a biblical perspective. He's saying, look, in the grand scheme of things, chances are you're not the most important person in the room. Amen? In the grand scheme of things, we're almost never, if ever, the most important person in a room. And there's always somebody that comes in and, you know, maybe they've got a higher position in life or perhaps they have a greater wealth of knowledge or or whatever. When you clamor for the best seat, you're basically saying that you're better than everybody else who's there. When you do it yourself, that's why Scripture says, let another man praise you. We're not to lift ourselves up and exalt ourselves. And he who invited you, And him will come and say to you, give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. You can just see him kind of shouldn't be sitting in the middle seat because he's here. And we'll get to it in a moment. Of course, there's a single guest that's always worthy of that seat. But when you're invited, verse 10 says, go sit down at the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. God appoints, 
God anoints. God is the one who promotes. God is the one who puts people in positions of authority. And it's up to him to to do those things to us, through us, and in us. And if he wants us to take a position of authority, he's more than able to make those things happen. And Paul even addressed it in a, in a, in a, in a more precise way. He said, it's, it's good that not many of you should become teachers of the word. Know this. In doing so, you'll suffer the greater condemnation and stricter judgment. So what Jesus is saying is, look, if God has you to sit at the head table, you'll sit at the head table. But if God wants you to sit in the lowest seat, if you start there, all you can do is go up. Amen? It's a wonderful thing. That's why when someone wants to serve, one of the very first things that we we try and get people to understand is in this church, you're you're not going to walk through the doors of this church and, hey, I, you know, I just came to, you know, take over this study or that study or, you know, I want to be in charge of this or in charge of that. You need to come here and why don't you be a greeter for a while? Why don't you spend some time in children's ministry? Those things are important, and it gives us an opportunity to see what kind of character that person has and whether they're going to do it as unto the Lord or do it to be seen of men. Because a lot of people come and they want to be seen of men. And the Lord Jesus is saying, look, the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Friend, go up higher, and then you'll have the glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. <laughs> when we get to heaven, I, I, I don't know that the marriage supper of the Lamb is actually going to be one gigantic triclinium, but I'm pretty sure I know who's sitting at the table, at the head. It's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That spot's taken anyway. We don't, we don't need to fight for it because it's already been, it, it was done on Calvary's cross. The rest of us, we're all lower than that. I know when I get to heaven, there's going to be a single thought on my mind. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? You're going to be doing good just to get there. (laughs) What seat you have at the table, what seat I have at the table, it isn't going to matter. Not one. I'll take the crumbs from the master's table. Thank you very much. (laughs) Just getting there will be a joy in and of itself. And we want to do as well as we can. But we'll also be doing good just to simply be at the feast. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, it says in verse 11. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So he takes advantage of the silence, and and he points out the selfishness, the pride, the arrogance of the Pharisees. And then he said in verse 12 to those who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends or your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. Now, many, maybe some of you in here have, have run in the circles that Connie and I used to run in in business, and it is just so pathetic to sit in, the, in these groups of, you know, business, the business association meetings, you know, to where they all invite each other to the same dinners at each other's house, basically to show off how wealthy they are and to show the things that they have. That was what these guys were doing in a religious sense. They're like inviting all of their cronies to come to their house. Let me show you how holy I am. And then they would invite each other to each other's house. Well, let me show you how holy I am. And I'm more holy than you. I mean, look at me. I'm at the center table. You can kind of see how it all related to people who put their hope and their trust in what they own, what they know, what they can do, and the things that people think about them. 
I know what the Bible says about humanity. That the end, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's trash. It's worthy of nothing compared to the glory of Christ. doesn't mean that we can't do good things, and we should. But it does mean that compared to Jesus, he ought to be at the head of the table all the time. And wherever we end up sitting, that's okay. You see, they were setting a trap. It was the bait of this, this man that Jesus had healed. And when you, goes on to say, when you invite people to your place for supper, <laughs> look at this. Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. That's not on very many people's guest lists, amen? It's on Jesus' guest list. Nobody enjoys those things more than people who don't normally have them. Nobody is more blessed by being taken well care of than those who normally are not taken care of very well. And Jesus is saying, look, this is a matter of heart, guys. You're doing it for show. You ought to do it for real. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. They can't invite you to their party. They're not going to have a party. For you shall be repaid. Notice he now puts it into the eternal perspective at the resurrection of the just. And just as D.L. Moody said, and I love, some of his one-liners are just amazing. The head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the listener to every conversation is none other than the Lord Jesus. Whether we like to admit it or not, or acknowledge it or not, in the center of everything is the God who created us and his son who died for us. And so it really boils down to, are we going to acknowledge who is the head or not? Or are we going to try and supplant Christ? Are we going to try and take his place? Are we going to steal his glory is another way to look at it. We're going to try and say, well, this is all about me. That's why as grateful as I am for compliments, I I appreciate them. I don't want people to think the wrong thing. It's not a false sense of humility. But anything good that happens in this church, that's because of Jesus. Anything good that happens from what comes from his word, it's because of Jesus. Anything that we're able to do, people we're able to help, it's because of Jesus. It's not me. It's not my leadership. I'm pleasured to be a part. But should the Lord fail to show up, we're all in trouble. Because it's him. It's always been him. It will always be him. And so you look forward to that eternal perspective. And one day everything is going to be revealed. God's word is clear on that. That passage in Matthew 6, verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One day every single thing and every motivation for everything is going to be revealed. That's the part that actually frightens me personally. Because I know there's been times when I've done good things for the wrong motivation. And and I've done wrong things with actually a pretty good heart about it. Everything in between. I've made mistakes that I look back on. I really didn't mean to make that mistake, but I made the mistake with the right heart. And I sometimes wonder if our mistakes with the right heart aren't better than good things with the wrong heart. Not sure. I'll have to ask him when I get there. What Jesus says here in this, you'll be blessed. 
Now, the word blessed, as you all know, actually loosely translated means happy. If you want to be happy in eternity, then you need to be looking for the lesser seats. Amen? Not worried about what's going to happen in, in the big seat. And so Jesus is going to give them a sharp, 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 sharp lesson. He's just going to kind of finger in the chest thing. Look, come on, guys. Let's settle this once and for all. Verse 15 says, And now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat of the bread in the kingdom. He starts to get all spiritually. That's not a word, but I just made it up. But kind of, kind of just goes with a little bit of, well, I'll throw out this nice little triviality of religiousness. Yes, he'll be blessed. Yes, he'll be happy. And he's still missing the point. The reason we know he's missing the point is what Jesus says next. Everybody's still missing the point. They're all going, well, of course. And what he's really saying is, yep, I'm going to be there. And Jesus is going to actually say, hmm, you might want to rethink that a little bit. You may want to reconsider your position. There's an interesting thing that happens in the court of law. As, as the cases are pleaded and the defense is mounted and the prosecution presents its case, there is an opportunity pretty much until the verdict is announced for you to plea bargain, for you to admit guilt, for you to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. But it is volitional. You have to do it yourself. You've got to say, look, I was wrong. This whole thing was a lie. I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the court. Up until the verdict is pronounced. Once it's pronounced, it's over. Now it goes into the penalty phase. And Jesus is basically trying to say to him, look, there's still some time. The court's still in session. And so they're not quite getting it. In verse 16 he says, And then he said to them, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and he sent his servant to supper to say, Those who are invited, come, because all things are ready. You see, the gospel's gone out. And I want you to see this very, very, very clearly. The gospel has gone out. The invitation's been given. Jesus sent it to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And I want you to notice what they all of a sudden did. And, and with one accord, verse 18 says, with one accord, they all began to make excuses. Isn't that the world? Well, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this or I'm that. or You know, I mean, I've been going to this church for I don't know how long, but it doesn't apply to me. Whatever it says is good for everybody else, not good for me. Don't have to do it. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuses. And so the Lord now, as we close, is going to just make sure that they get the point. He's going to give them three representative excuses. And I will tell you that if you go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, you can begin to look at those things. I'm going to have the elders begin to pass out the elements of communion as I... Wrap this up for you. As the Lord speaks to us through the power of his word, we're going to hold the elements together and we'll partake after we've prayed. But I'm going to ask you right now to begin to examine your own heart. 
because people still make excuses as to why they won't do what Jesus has said to do. Why they won't live the way Jesus said we ought to live. And why we're going to continue to live the way we think we ought to live apart from what Jesus has said. And these three excuses are representative pretty much of the excuses to this day. And so the Lord picks out these three excuses. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. And the first one said, I bought a piece of ground. I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. So the first guy thought that he was just simply too big, too important to come to the Lord. He, he looks at his life, complete falsehood. He bought some property. And so in his case, the pride of life there in 1 John 2 is in view for him. Look, I've got all these land holdings. I mean, I'm a developer after all. I mean, i got better things to do with my time than this whole Jesus thing. He considered himself above everyone else. And another in verse 19 said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. And I ask that you have me excused. He was too busy to come. The first guy, too big. The second guy, too busy. The first guy, too prideful. And the second guy, too many possessions to come. So you know what? I just got all this stuff, and i got to take care of my stuff. And this guy's kind of like someone who's in the middle of, of a working class you know, middle-income family who's, you know, still got to have all the stuff. The reason I'm working two jobs is not because I need it, it's because I bought too much stuff. The reason I can't serve the Lord is because of my stuff. The reason I'm, I'm sitting here without any relationship with Jesus is because I'm focused on my stuff. It's a lot of America. A lot of lost people that their stuff is keeping them from Christ. And I want you to see these three guys in, in light of, of our world that we live in. And that's why in that passage there in First John it says, Do not love the world. Amen? For all that is of the world, and then he gives these three same basic analogies, by the way, And so he says, look, I, I want to be excused. Basically, he's saying, I can't come. He, he bought uh, five yoke of oxen. That would be ten oxen. He had a lot of oxen. They're untested. They're untried. I don't know what to do with this. There's no way he could make it. And still another said, the third guy, I married a wife. That is not a slam on marriage, by the way. But it was a proclamation that his honeymoon was more important than his relationship with God. And therefore I cannot come. 
I've married a wife. I cannot come. Notice each one of these guys says, I cannot come, which was not true. They would not come. And that is very different than cannot come. And so Jesus is saying to these guys, look, what's keeping you from following me? What's keeping you from being who you ought to be in Christ? He was too blissful. So you've got someone who's too busy, someone who's too big, someone who's too blissful. In other words, passion had crept into his life in such a way that he could not see the path forward. Look, we're going on our honeymoon. And again, God loves honeymoons, okay? But at some point, the honeymoon's supposed to be over, and we're supposed to get back to fighting the fight, amen? Walking the walk, talking the talk, being who we're supposed to be in Christ. The story had really just begun, and it begins basically as we begin to end it. And so that servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house, being angry, being angry. God's a little upset. He said, look, you, it, you can come. You don't want to come. You're too busy. You don't want to come. You're too big for your britches. You, you don't want to come. You're too busy having fun. He says, there's still room. And so he says, go out quickly into the streets, the lanes of the city. He says, okay, you, you, you Jewish religious leaders don't want to come? I'm going to go invite the poor people in town because there's still room. Go out and bring here the, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there's room. And God's saying, look, we need to get first things first here. And that's where it ties in with this. Because there is one coming supper that you all want to be at, and that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't want to miss that supper. And I believe most of you in here looking at your faces know the Lord Jesus personally. And so for you, this is just simply a reminder. You don't want to be too busy for Jesus. And you don't want to be too big for Jesus. And you don't want to be too blissful for Jesus. And what God wants to do in your life, you should let him do. And if he tells you to get up and move to another seat, get up and move to another seat. And so as we think about the elements of communion, the Apostle Paul said, those things which I received, I now give to you. They're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord, on the same day that he was betrayed, he took the cup, took the bread. He said, look, these things are a testimony, and I'm paraphrasing, of what accomplished, what God accomplished for us at Calvary's cross. His, his body that was broken and his blood that was shed was not so we could do our own thing. Now, God lets us be individuals. Praise him for that. God lets us have joy. Praise him for that. God gives us good things. Praise him for that. He is wonderful to us. Hallelujah. 
He gives us joy and peace and all those things. But what He's required from us is to let Him tell us where we sit at the table. It's called Lordship. And so there's room to come. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, now's a good time. Because there's still room to come. If you do know Him, then ask Him what He wants you to do at the table. Where He wants to use you. What He'd like to do with your life. Because He bought it. Your Bible says. Your life was paid for with His. And so we're going to pray. And then we're going to partake. And as we do so, just ask the Lord. Lord, am I, am I too big, too busy, too blissful? Is there anything in my life, your life, that maybe has gotten out of proportion? And if so, ask Him to change it. Let Him put you to seat where you belong. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning in Your Word. God, there have been times when I've been too busy. (laughs) There have been times when I've been too blissful. And there have been times when I've been too big for my britches. Lord, I've been all three of these things. Lord, we as your people, we want to be where you want us to be. We want to do what you want us to do. And God, we don't want to be out of your will. And Lord, sometimes things keep us away. And we make our excuses. And so, God, we just lay those excuses down today. We ask you to change us and transform us and mold us and shape us. Lord, put us at whatever seat. God, we'll be grateful just to get to the kingdom of heaven, much less to have a place of prominence, God. Help us to rest and trust in the fact that One day, Lord, we're all going to be with you. And the stuff of this earth isn't going to matter anyway. We thank you, Jesus, for your body which was broken and your blood that was shed. Help us to never forget the price that was paid so that we could be at that marriage supper of the Lamb. We love you for it. We thank you for it. We bless you. And Lord, we say thank you this morning for what you did so that we could be with you forever. So in Christ's name we pray these things. All God's people said. Amen. Let's partake together.